G'day and welcome to another episode of Perth Property Insider. I'm your host, Jared Mann. And today I'm absolutely like a little kid in the Christmas candy store because I've got one of my all-time favorite authors on the show, Steve McKnight, the author of Zero to 130 Properties in Three and a Half Years. The book I read when I was 20 years old gave me huge inspiration for my journey. And today we've got him on chatting about what he's been up to for the last few decades, as well as his new book, Money Magnet, How to Attract and Keep a Fortune That Counts, which has been very much my focus of the podcast over the last few months, that inner game and mindset, which is far more important than the tactics and the how-to. So couldn't be more aligned with Steve, and I'm sure it'll inspire you to pick up his book to read across your Christmas break, and it's going to be a great episode. So let's go inside. Welcome to Perth Property Insider, where you will learn how to grow your wealth and improve your life using Perth property. Our show is brought to you by Investors Edge Real Estate, the highly rated and award-winning property management specialist servicing the whole of Perth. Now, here is your host, Jared Mann. Hey, Steve. Welcome to Perth Property Insider. A huge honour to have you on the show. Um, Been an inspiration for me since off. You know, I read your first book way back when, and I'm sure hundreds of thousands of Australian property investors feel the same. So really privileged to have you on. It's very kind and hello to everyone listening in. (laughs) So for those of you that don't know, and maybe for those of you that do, Tell us a bit about your background and what got you into property investing because it's always good to start at the beginning. Hmm. Funny, like I'm probably most well known for the number of properties I've bought, which isn't, I think, helpful mm. in the grand scheme of things because it takes the focus on the or off the outcome and onto the the mechanism of how I achieve the outcome. Mm. So let's talk about the outcome and then let's talk about the mechanism. The outcome mm. is that. I was in a job I didn't want to do and I was looking for a way of getting out of it. And in simple terms, I needed to find income from other sources to replace the income I was earning from selling my time for money. In my case, I was working in accounting. Good at it, didn't like doing it. And I looked at various different things and I settled on positive cash flow real estate. The outcome, therefore, was control of my time. My outcome wasn't Ferraris, yachts opulence, buying an aeroplane, my outcome was control of my time again. The mechanism, as I mentioned, was positive cash flow real estate. Now, then it became a question of how many properties would I have to buy in order to no longer have to work again? Yeah, and it was so a big number. accountant's hat on and worked that all out. Yeah, or logic. Yep. And the answer was we had to buy, when I say we, it was me and a business partner, Dave Bradley at the time. We had to buy between the two of us a total of 130 properties or thereabouts, and we got going and did it, and we achieved that goal in three and a half years. So I've been theoretically financially free since I was 32. There's been like the game Snakes and Ladders. There's been some snakes and there's been some ladders, but more or less I haven't had to work in accounting since I was 32. So it's been a while now. I've just turned 50, so I've been financially free for 18 years on the back of the power of positive cash flow real estate. Hmm. So you obviously did a lot and reflecting back on it all, what were some of your key learnings and mistakes that you made? Because I'm sure some might stick out to you. 
Yeah, well, I mean, people probably sit there thinking, well, that's good for you, mate, but do you still need to buy 130 properties to be financially free today? And the answer is no. We didn't know any other way of doing it. There was no Steve McKnight out there teaching people. There was no Jared podcast that you could listen into. There were some books that you can read on concepts, but there wasn't the same level of education Mm. available to people back when I got started as there is today. Well, even when you wrote your book, I had that and Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and they were my two, you know, guiding inspirations, if you will. So yeah, it's hard a lot to of find people... stuff. You know, you'd have to go to the US just to find other authors. So, And a lot of people have said to me that Rich Dad, Poor Dad gave them the idea, but not to 130, the book that I wrote gave them the strategy on how to accomplish yeah, that idea. Tactics book for that type of positive cash flow investing, wasn't it? And I read uh, rich dad poor dad and that gave me part of the idea and but then i had to go and figure out how to do it my myself and perhaps that's why the book works because i talk about what i did but i talk about not 230 these days is the the sort of impossible mountain you think you can't climb but you need mm. to climb in order to get to where you want to go i've just finished doing some hiking to raise some money for cancer research and something very interesting that the hike leader said on it which i've taken to heart and think it's a great saying is you don't reach the summit by going downhill. And sometimes I think people try and achieve great goals with an effective walk down a slope. It doesn't work mm-hmm. like that. If you want to get up high, you've got to walk the height. And our height was the mountain was 130 properties. But for everyone else, it might be two or three or four properties debt-free, which will get you to the same outcome. I mean, I'm a guy who bought 130 properties, tended to trade up through them, and today, my property portfolio is three commercial properties plus a giant investment in my own fund that I manage, and that brings in half a million dollars a year of net income. I mean, that's enough to live off. That's enough to be financially free for most people. It is yeah. enough for me. And so you don't need a giant portfolio. In fact, sometimes the more properties you own, the more aggravating it is to manage them all. So I well, that's certainly the, the realisation I've come to in property management. You know, we look after 900-odd properties and when I I was originally focusing more on um, the, the cash flow end and quantity and, you know, having the barbecue story of I own X number of properties. But now that nowadays I prefer to have quality over quantity and, and simplicity and uh, if I've only got four or five tenants on high-quality properties, then that is better by choice for me but there's many paths to get to that outcome and i I love what you're saying that don't get attached to the vehicle per se but you know get clear on what that outcome is that you're trying to get to and i'm with you why own 100 properties when you can own three (laughs) i mean you end up in the job of investing yeah and then the the outcome becomes muddled because you swap your job you don't want to do for a job you do want to do but i'm here to tell you sooner or later you're not going to want to do that job (laughs) exactly yeah and people do uh you know put some of the more active strategies on a pedestal such as development and renovation but you know how much of your time are you giving to those and and yes it can help you chunk up money and get to that outcome too but you shouldn't kid yourself that it's going to be passive and maybe that's the uphill that you need to do if you want to do things quickly 
be careful that your investing doesn't become your ego and define who you are. Otherwise, mm. you will struggle to leave it behind. I once heard it said that the smartest people paint pictures of others. If you paint yourself in your picture, it's very hard to get out of it. Mm. So if, mm. if who you are is what you do, then who are you when you don't do it? Yeah. And for me, I was never the guy defined by 230 or the author or, or the property investor. I've always been the person that just wanted to get out of accounting and control my time. Mm-hmm. And look, you, other people might be able to do it through other mechanisms, mm-hmm. whether it might be something that I don't understand, like cryptocurrency, or it might be shares or businesses. There's, there's lots of ways to get to the outcome. It's just that real estate worked for me. And it worked for me because I played Monopoly as a kid. I understood it. And I like the tangible nature of real estate. To me, it's logical the way the numbers work, the way the principles work. It, it's something that is an, a natural thing that I can understand. Makes sense to a lot of us. And yeah, exactly. We, we can see it and you can add value to it if you want to as well, unlike a share that you buy. And mm. well, earlier on today, I put an offer on a. $5 million property and $5 million, that sounds like a lot, but it's like, well, $5 million, $50 million, $500 million, mm-hmm. we're only talking about scale. The principle is the same, small as it is big. And that sounds a bit of a cliche, but it's true. Sometimes the smaller deals are more risky than the bigger mm-hmm. deals because the bigger deals tend to be more on principle and less on emotion. So this mm-hmm. was a commercial property when the rent was uh, whatever it was, divided by an eight and a half percent return that I wanted to get, and that gave a, an offer price of five mil. So it's like, all right, well, I know I'm going to pull a five an eight and a half percent return by this offer price. Let's let's make the yeah. offer. So what do you say to those that think, oh, well, it must have been easy for you, Steve, back in the day? You know, house prices have gone up since. Lending's a lot different. Mm-hmm. You know, is it they're, they're sitting there wondering, you know, is it still possible for them to find their way out to that? outcome of financial freedom i would never have said it was easy because everyone has their own challenges Mm. i would have said it was fun and it was exciting and it was a hell of a lot better than accounting (laughs) (laughs) that propelled you forward then well yeah it was it was it became a bit of an adventure and it it had its own momentum behind Mm. what we were doing but again i don't want to be defined by what i did in the mechanism I want to be defined on what I achieved in respect to an outcome. And to that, and to answer your question, I think what I'd say is that every generation and every investor faces their own challenges and their ability to identify and overcome those challenges will determine whether they make no progress, a little bit of progress, or achieve their goals. And in mentoring programs that I've run in years past, we would talk about the difference between a must and a maybe. And a lot of people say that they want to achieve something but it's not a must mm. it's uh, i wish i i wish i could yeah and in money magnet, challenge might- comes up and and then that knocks them back and you see them five years later and oh no didn't move forward with that and it, it, yeah as you say it wasn't a must to get through it yeah well in the latest book money magnet that i've just written i talk about this notion of compelling reasons And for instance, even though Money Magnet is somewhat of a prequel to my real estate books, we can maybe talk about that a bit later, but the the notion is that if you don't have a compelling reason to save, then you'll spend. Mm -hmm. So what's the secret to saving? The secret to saving is to create a compelling reason that's greater than the temptation of spending. 
So how do you achieve your real estate goals? Well, you have compelling reasons that push you forward. So when it's no longer fun or you've made a little bit of progress and a little bit of success and you're thinking, oh, don't really have to work as hard to get to the next level to level up. Maybe I'll just have a rest here. That compelling reasons pushing you out of your comfort zone all the time. And the lack of a compelling reason is a reason for embracing a comfort zone. So if people are listening to this and they're thinking, geez, I've really lost my, my, my momentum, what I would say to them is, well, what's your compelling reason to keep making the effort? And you might think, well, I don't have a compelling reason because as Brendan Nichols, a mentor of mine, says the enemy of a great life is a good life and things are good, mm. so why bother? But the people that keep going have this compelling reason beyond doing nothing. And again, in the I found console, that my reasons changed over time too. Mm, tell us about that. Well, when I was starting out, my compelling reason was that growing up, I didn't have a lot. So, you know, we'd get secondhand clothes from the op shop and I'd get a Vegemite sandwich for lunch each day when the other kids got money for the canteen. And, you know, my dad wasn't mm. around. So I thought if I could have money, then I could give my kids more and more of me, more of my time and be there as well as, you know, choices to actually you know, enjoy life a bit more, not feel like it's so hard. But mm. once you achieve that sort of base survival, and, and I'm sure we'll talk a bit, a bit more about this because it's, I love how you've talked about it in your book. You, you start to then look up and think, well, is, it, is this all there is to life? You know, I've got that, that base level covered. What's and, next? And that's where people can get comfortable too. Mm. And just getting back to, you know, what, I, I kind of was never going to rest at that because it, it didn't fulfill me either. So I kind of then would look to my personal growth and, and continuing to grow myself and the others around me. And, and, then, and then I've also um, I continued to give back to a lot of causes and I, I kind of look at it being a bit selfish because um, the mentoring and stuff I do with teenagers, I, I walk out with the biggest buzz and uh, just seeing them transform over a five-day camp hero, for instance, and and that's the type of thing that keeps me coming back to doing those things. And well, so. why don't we agree on saying that something of discomfort causes you to make the first step, but once that discomfort isn't there anymore, you need something to keep you going. Yeah, and I think you and I share the similarity of growing up in a house where there wasn't much and, and wanting more for our kids than maybe what we had for ourselves. But something that I've realised is that <laughs> you can overcorrect. I know where you're going with this. <laughs> and you can end up with children yeah. who are dependent on you, like the millionaire next door talks mm. about this economic yeah. outpatient care, where their lifestyle can't be supported without your welfare mm. to them. And so you end up with children for life. They never really learn to grow up because they remain dependent on you. Exactly. Yeah, it's really, I'm trying to move into the space of conscious parenting and I've had various guests on the podcast. I've got, we've got a, an author in Perth that runs this uh, thing called Money School and she tries to make, um, you know, translating of those principles and values fun and engaging for the next generation and her concept is, you know, give them the how-to and the, you know, the right subconscious programming that we all get between what the age of one to seven and, and instead of you know the wrong programming that you have to many of us have had to go and correct and yeah i'm trying to be more of that conscious parent i've got a four-year-old so not repeating the same mistakes that my parents did <laughs> i've become a believer that you should keep give your kids hand ups not handouts 
Mm, good one. Yeah, that, I'm going to have to listen, listen back to this. Uh, a lot of the gems you're you're dropping here for us too. So yeah, that's that's a really good one. I mean, I've only learned that because I mean, I always thought I'll work hard so my kids don't have to. The flaw mm. in that argument is, well, if your kids don't have to work hard, they'll never appreciate what you give them. Mm. And I was just watching Sunrise today, and there was a. I don't usually watch morning TV. I was just. I got out of bed with a thumping headache today, and I was like, "Oh, I'll just sit on the couch and watch the mind-numbing TV. That might help." Mm-hmm. And I was sitting on the couch, and a segment came on about teaching, "Oh, or what's the ideal first car for a, a new driver?" Oh, yeah. yeah. And I thought, "Oh, this will be interesting." You know, my <laughs> first car was a 1964 Cortina, and I was driving mm-hmm. that in 1982, 1992. So it was a it was a <laughs> junk mm-hmm. on wheels. And anyway, the the segment starts, and they say, "Well." $30,000, that's the entry point to Oof. buy your, your child a car. Mm. I nearly fell off my couch. Oh, I was like, what? Who buys their kid a $30,000 brand new car as their oh first car? That's a probably people, no doubt, but yeah. not me. We just bought my, um, well, co-bought our uh, eldest daughter a car last year, and the deal we gave to her was, was that we would go halves with her up mm. to five grand. So oh, yeah, she'd matching. have to put in. Yeah, was, if yeah. the car was 10, we'd put in five. If the car was 12, we'd put in five. And she'd have to put the rest in herself. She'd have to have some skin in the deal. And then mm. came time to insurance. And she said, well, you put the insurance in your name so that it's cheaper. And I said, absolutely not. You're making the way in the world now and you want to drive mm. the car, you have to pay for the insurance. It's on you. And it comes back to that journey up the mountain, doesn't it? Like if you try to shortcut it for her. Well, um, we, we gave her a hand up in the sense yep. of, you know, we'll, we'll help you get into it. We also gave yeah. her a hand out in the sense of five grand. But I think, you know, the idea of paying 30 grand for your kid to have a new car or worse, get into a, get a car loan to buy it, I, I think sets up an expectation that will be difficult to maintain through life. Mm. Make it a rod for yourself. Mm. So thinking back to those that might be listening that are starting out if you were back starting out again and you had more of a longer term focus like 20 or 30 years to to grow your your wealth and you were actually happy in your job and you didn't want to get out of it what sort of approach do you suggest that people would take these days to grow their wealth is it you gotta be careful because this is sort of bordering on that that financial advice exactly i'm not licensed to give financial advice so i can't give financial advice but if we talked about it from an education principles yeah. yeah, principles are an education point of view. Exactly. Very difficult to buy the outcome today. It was very difficult to buy the outcome back in my time as well. But what I talk about in Money Magnet, again, is this principle of making, managing, and multiplying your money. So first step is to make money. There's only two ways to make money. Jared, the first way is you swap your time for money, and that's salary, business, et cetera, whatever it might be. And then the second way you can make money is deploy your capital. And it's interesting, my youngest daughter this week came to me and said, Dad, will you, can you teach me? She's 17. Well, can you teach me how to invest? I thought, oh, hello. I've got, <laughs> this is an interesting <laughs> conversation. I've been waiting for this day, I must say. And I sat down there and I said, Law, look, really what, what I need to educate you about if you want to learn to invest is you need to know why, why you want to invest. Because investing is, again, the mechanism to an outcome. What outcome mm. do you want to achieve? Do you want to get a lump sum of money that you can then spend buying something? Or do you want to get control of your time back? And she's like, oh, I don't know. I don't know what I want. I just want to invest. I've got money and it's just sitting in the bank doing nothing. And I said, well, before you decide what, decide why. 
And I would say that to anyone, you know, like the right investing path depends on what you're trying to achieve. Mm. If we assume that your goal is to no longer have to work, choose to work if you want, you want control of your time back, which is what I wanted, well, then the outcome you need is enough money coming in from your investments so you don't have to swap your time for money anymore. And the quickest way of being able to do that is to spend less than you earn to create a situation where you have a surplus and then deploy that surplus to make the most money in the quickest time for the least risk and the lowest aggravation. So what does that look like? Well, now we move from making money to multiplying my money, and that's about managing the money that comes in, and then you move on into multiplying your money, which is most money, quickest time, least risk, lowest aggravation. And what I would recommend people do today and what I tell my kids when they ask is, well, invest for growth while you build your capital base and then invest for income once you've got enough capital to redeploy it. Which makes a lot and of sense. that might take some time. As you said, it might take a couple of decades. You can do it sooner, but the sooner you want to achieve the goal and the bigger the goal is, the harder it is and the harder you have to work. I mean, people mm. think, oh, you know, you basically got financially free in five years, Steve. That must have been easy. It's like, no, just imagine cramming in 30 years of work into five years. That's effectively how hard it was. But it was fun. But it was still long hours and seven days a week and everything else. Mm. So is there any strategies to try to achieve that over a shorter time period for those that don't have the time or want to make it sooner? So we've talked about really the what. and We've talked about the why, the how, which is the strategy piece. Again, depends on someone's time, money, risk, and skill profile, Mm. because we each all have different attributes or what I call inputs to derive an output. Someone might say, I hate renovating. Mm. Someone might say they love it. Do what comes most naturally to you and don't do what doesn't. There's Mm. no point forcing yourself to get an A on a subject you naturally a D at. Get an A on a subject that you're naturally an A at. And again, it doesn't have to be real estate. I mean, real estate was my thing. But it's not the only thing. Uh, For some people out there, they would be probably much better off just sticking to their job and managing their money well and putting a bit aside and just let time and trend be their friend. For people that don't want that, they want to get out of the game sooner, well, then you're going to have to find something else you can do to make money. And really, the three things generally are businesses, shares, and real estate. Now, you've got some fringe things like crypto and Lord knows what else out there as well, but they haven't been my thing, so I'm not the expert to talk to you about them. Hmm. I've heard you talk about over the years that a great approach is to find problems and solve them, and that certainly relates to me when you're trying to do things quicker. Well, this property I put an offer on, this $5 million property, it's a solution. I'm buying my outcome. I'm buying an 8.5% return. The tenant's in place for three more years. I'll get three years at 8.5%. So what's three times eight to 24? 24% of my purchase price will be returned back to me. So that really means that there's 75% of the purchase price at risk if they don't renew. Or another way you look at it is I'm effectively buying the purchase price, um, buying the property for 75% of its asking price because it comes with 24% of guaranteed return out of the gate. Hmm. So there's different ways of looking at things that come with your level of sophistication, but we're not talking about that today. We're talking no. about you know what, and again, what comes with the context of what problem are you trying to solve or what's your risk tolerance and, and what are you capable of doing? And remember that there's, and again, covered in Money Magnet, the, there's a formula for, for getting rich. That formula has got three ingredients to it. That is capital, the amount of capital you've got to invest, your return, and time. 
Now, return is a function of risk. And if you want to get bigger returns, normally there's more risk. So how do you get bigger returns without taking more risk? The answer is skill. The more skilled you are at doing something, the more adept you are at identifying risk and mitigating and managing it. But if you don't know what you're doing, well, then you tend to buy something and hope it works out. And hope is not a plan, as I like to say. Well, it definitely makes sense to use the skills that you've gained in your job and try to translate them. And that seems to be what you and Dave did with your investing. And Dave, after Dave and I went our separate ways in 06, Dave continued on doing developing land subdivisions and was, by all reports, extremely successful at it. And Dave's one of the smartest people I've ever had the fortune of working with when it comes to money. He was exceptional at being able to understand money, far better than me. And that's why I say to people, sometimes trying to do it on your own is a mistake. You're better off teaming up with people who've got skills that you don't, so you get the best out of each other. Yes, you need to share the profit, but the sum of the parts is greater than the sum of the individuals. Mm. Now, coming on to your book, Money Magnet, I've Mm. certainly really enjoyed it, and I think there's going to be great reading for people across Christmas. Um, Tell us why you chose to write the book and why now because it's been a while since you wrote your last one. (laughs) Yeah, it's interesting because we were before we hit record, we were just chatting to each other about introverts and extroverts, and I was saying what an introvert I am, and the the PR and everything that goes into the book is is pushing me out of my comfort zone. I didn't write the book, or why didn't I write the book? I didn't write Mm. the book for fame and fortune. I'm giving away all the royalties to projects that benefit the environment, to a passion I've got. But what I continued to get was more or less like the conversation we're having today, Jared, which is, well, you know, it's great for you. You bought 130 properties back in the day and now you're financially free. Bully for you. What about someone who's starting off today? What would you say to them? And the answer is don't worry about investing. Investing is what happens down the track. Before we get to investing, we've got Mm -hmm. the make and the manage pieces to master. And the reason I say that is because over the last couple of decades when I've been running seminars, a reasonably common occurrence was that people would turn up and say, I've got a money problem and I need to make some money. That's why I'm investing. And I said, well, all right, I'll teach you how to make money. But if you've got a problem, how will making more money solve that problem? Mm. Because I see it as well. It's like they've got a money crisis and they're trying to solve it by investing. So, Well, I've got an alcohol problem. Let's solve it by consuming more alcohol. It's like, well, hang on a second. Let's let's talk about why, why you've got an alcohol problem, and let's fix that so that the money you make, you're likely to keep. So the subtitle of the book is how to attract and keep, not in a, a sort of you know sit cross-legged kumbaya kind of way, but what are the strategies and mindset needed to attract wealth, i.e., make it and manage it, and how to attract and keep a fortune that counts. How do you multiply it and it's an entendre. How do you make it matter? Because some people, the amount of money they've got is a scoreboard, more equals better. Mm. What I've found is that that's fine to a point. Then you start thinking, oh, there's got to be more to life than yeah. bigger bank accounts. And that's about deploying your money in areas of significance that give you more motivation to keep going. And one little subject I can talk about, which is reasonably close to my heart at the moment, is I'm funding a medical trial. My daughter popped her ACL skiing. Someone ran into her and just took her knee out and ruptured her ACL. And she lucked into a medical trial where instead of needing surgery, her ACL naturally reattached by using a different protocol, a bracing protocol. Well, they want this bracing protocol to become more mainstream. 
of course, orthopedic surgeons have a vested interest against that because they make so mm-hmm. much money out of <laughs> stitching people's tendons back together. So I said, well, look, I'll throw six figures at it to to fund the blind trial and the, the medical trial to try and help you get this more mainstream because I'm such a believer in it. Mm-hmm. And so when you've got money and resources, you can then do something with it. So as I like to say, $10 is $10 or $100 is $100. Uh, and it is what it is. What's the context of $100? Well, if you're sponsoring a child somewhere, $100 might be their food and education for that month. Mm. Or it's $100 to you. It buys you a dinner out. Like the way you use your money gives you a context for your money. And if you want your money to mean more and matter more, then give it a context which is more than you. Otherwise, your money will only ever be your context. And if your context is about comfort, then your money will buy comfort will be comfort. But when you're dead, what kind of legacy does that leave? Mm. And the conversation in the book is like, well, all right, the first step is survival. You need to have enough to know that you've got enough. But once you've achieved that goal, then what? And then it's, well, here's what I'm doing. I'm using my money to create significance Mm. and to leave a legacy so that after I'm gone, the world will be a better place for me having been here at all that's what i would like to do with my money rather than just die and it gets distributed to my beneficiaries and they can't wait for dad to die because they're going to get a a lot of money it's like well don't let that be your expectation assume you're going to get nothing and anything you get's a bonus don't be sitting around waiting for dad to topple off the perch and for mum to topple off the perch and for you to get rich because that's that's not the goal Hmm. and in the book you also mentioned that you don't have to wait until you have all the money in the world to start doing things that are more significant. Tell us a bit more about that because that struck a a chord to me. And even back when I had nothing and the only thing I had was my time, I would go and give that because I didn't have the money. And it really helped me and it spun, it came back around to help my overall journey. And I'd meet people there that were in their 20s or 30s mentor. 30 years older than me mentoring that had left it till the end when they, you know, were in that giving back stage. But I didn't want to wait my whole life to start, if that makes sense. Yeah, there's a couple of principles we could talk about here. First of all is when you're young, you tend to extrapolate your life to be more of the same as you are now. My 30s will be like my 20s. My 40s will be like Mm -hmm. my 20s. My 50s will be like my 20s. And so forth, because you well, for you, some people they never grow up, and <laughs> <laughs> well, it's your context. But it's it's not how life unfolds, Jared. Because yeah. what happens is the older you get, your energy levels change, your desires and and the things that interest you change, and your health changes. Just mm. naturally does. That's yep. as we get older, our health tends to deteriorate. Our capabilities tend to deteriorate simply biologically as our hormones change. Now we can. I often say, if you want to be healthier than the average person, you have to be healthier than the average person. You can't be unhealthier than the average person and expect to be healthier than the average person. If you want to be wealthier than the average person, then you need to be better at making, managing, multiplying your money than the average person, which means that you need to have healthier finances. You can't be an unhealthy, you can't have unhealthy finances and overachieve. It doesn't work like that. Mm. And the principle that you're talking about is this principle of sowing and reaping, which most people have heard of. But the way I put it in the book is that in order to attract more opportunity, first you have to be more attractive. Mm. You can't 
expect generosity if you're not generous? And what comes first, the planting or the harvest? Well, obviously, you can't get a harvest if you haven't planted. And so the question we ask ourselves is, what are we sowing and what are we expecting to harvest? If we're sowing scarcity because we're really tight with our money and we're not being generous, but we expect generous opportunities to come our way, then don't be surprised when that doesn't happen. Mm. If you expect generosity first, you must be generous. Generosity is the harvest to your generous seed sowing. If you expect your marriage to do well, but you starve the marriage, well, then the marriage will starve. One of the sayings that I'm fond of is, feed what you need to feed and starve what you need to starve. Don't starve what you need to feed and feed what you need to starve. And often people are like, I don't have much, so therefore I'm going to starve what they hope to grow. Well, when you starve something, it won't grow. By its nature, it'll shrink. And that's how people are often with money and and generosity and and this, this notion of give back or significance. They're like, I'll do it when I've got more. But in order to get more, you've got to do it. And it's this this sort of mind trap that you get into. Once I'm rich, I'll give more money away. Well, you'll never get rich. Or if you do, you'll become so focused on protecting and keeping what you've got that that abundant mindset will mean that you end up being cheap. Yeah. And yes, you might have a lot of money ultimately, anyway. But you won't you won't draw a sense of satisfaction mm-hmm. on it. There's a fantastic children's book. I think it's called Harry and Herbert. Okay. And uh, it's, it's like a little picture cartoon book, and it's about yeah, two awesome. guys that go fishing in a boat, and uh, they they uncover this treasure, and <laughs> one guy goes, it's mine, pushes the other guy out of the boat, <laughs> and then finds himself on an island and is petrified the other guy's going to come and steal his treasure, and he spends his whole life petrified. He's got the treasure, but he spends yeah. his life trying to protect the treasure. And the other guy just by gets himself on. on his island. And- That's right. That's exactly right. And this other guy goes on and lives his life and has a family and is, is none the poorer for missing out on the treasure. And the guy <laughs> on the island is building bigger fortresses to protect the treasure from someone who's not even coming to steal it. Yeah, well, sounds like a good one. Harry and Henry. I'd have to go out to the bookshelf and get it. But I, actually, it was a church sermon I sat in on once. thought, <laughs> Jesus has got a really good application in wealth creation as well. Yeah, I'm just written it on my list or find out what it's exactly called and pop it in the show notes as well. And Yeah. Oh, I recommend reading it. I mean, it's not going to take you more than 10 minutes. Read it to four-year-old. Yeah, it'll be great. And, but remember, it's the application from, of the principle of how in your own life are you being stingy, expecting to also reap generous generosity? Like, if you expect to find a good deal, on what basis do you expect to find that? Mm. Do you just think you're going to find a deal that no one else has found because you're tight with your money? You tend to get run over by the karma bus, not picked up by the karma bus. Excellent. So what else do people sort of expect to learn about in your book? And we've touched well, on a few things today. Is a, I don't want to give away all parts of it because we certainly can't in a short podcast. But Well, the elevator pitch is this. I, I never grew up with someone who taught me about money. Yeah. I didn't have a rich uncle so-and-so who would come in and say, do this or do that. I didn't have a grandparent or a mother or a father even a brother or a sister a teacher no one i had to figure this out for myself Mm. and what i wanted to do with this book and it sort of comes back to the question before is it's a bit of a legacy piece i wanted to be able to share with people the things that i've learned about what has worked and what hasn't worked in amassing a fortune that counts and before you invest you really need to know these core essential principles so that the money you make you'll keep 
rather than the money that you make slipping through your fingers. And it's a very strategic how-to book. In my opinion, it comes with some exercises to get you to work through, really to get you thinking Mm. around how much is enough for you and how you're going to get there. And whereas there's, I'll give you a principle, right? Mm. Talking about this this week in a podcast that that I I started off doing on my own with a guy called Rowan Wen. And it's this notion that we often teach our kids to save. Yeah. We teach Mm. our kids the importance of saving, which is thoroughly wrong. You'd be like, what? <laughs> what do you mean? You've just told me that, you know, the tooth fairy doesn't have wings. It's like, no, saving saving's a terrible thing to teach your kids. Wow. Well, tell me more. Well, yeah, tell us. Yeah, because saving isn't the goal because you'll never get rich by saving money. Mm. Savings are a store of wealth, not a source of wealth. How many people do you know who save their way to financial freedom, save their way to a fortune? None. It's just- but we tell no one. But we tell our kids, you've got to save if you want to be rich. That's absolute bollocks. Now, most people save to do what? I'm saving up to, to spend. Usually. Spend. Yeah. It's a zero-sum game. Why bother saving? Well, it's better than getting into debt and spending money you don't have. But if you only ever learn or are taught by someone else that you need to save to spend, then you'll never be rich. So the whole notion of teaching our kids to save is fundamentally flawed because the implicit other thing we're not saying is, hey, you should save up for that. Save up for what? Save up for a holiday. Save up for a car. Save up to spend. And then we instill in our kids this, this constant habit of saving to spend when really what we should be teaching our kids is savings happens when you control your spending. So the skill we should be teaching our kids is controlling spending mm. and saving will happen. And yes. that way what we end up doing is not teaching our kids to spend via saving. We're teaching our kids to save via Controlled spending. spending. Yeah. So it's just a, a slight shift, but it's a very important shift. And then the second part is, well, okay, now you've got savings. What do you do with it? All right. Now we need to teach how to invest. But because so few people know how to invest, <laughs> yeah. it's like at school, you need to study hard. But I've never been taught how to study. Well, I don't care. Exactly. Study harder. <laughs> well, how? Well, I had to I had to teach myself how to study in uh, in year 12 after I'd failed a lot of high school. Just uh-huh. by sheer force of how do I do this? No one's taught me. And then I had to do the same with learning about money, money and my obsession. Same, same. Like how, do, how, do, how does all this work? And exactly. running my own mindset. So rather than having to figure it out for yourself, Money Magnet is the instruction manual written by someone who's financially successful about don't think the way everyone thinks so you'll get what everyone else has got, which is often money problems and struggles. Here's a different way of thinking that will unlock a different outcome, which is financially empowered rather than disempowered. No, it's a, it's a perfect book for where I'm at and where I'm trying to take the podcast at the moment too because you can speak tactics all day. You can win the lottery and divest yourself of it just as quickly as you've won. And if you're not ready for money and you're not going to be able to keep it and so – I spend more of my time speaking about the mindset and and our programming and our capacity for keeping and holding wealth and changing that comfort zone over time to to be ready for more. And this book just came up straight when I'm. Uh, Picture comes when the student's ready. Uh, let, let me let me put it this way, Steve. How do we get to Sydney? And I'm like, oh, well. Let me ask you the first question: Is why do you mm-hmm. want to get to Sydney? Well, I've got family up in Sydney I want to go and visit. All right, no worries. 
So now you've got a, you've a got reason. A destination. Do you really want to get there, or is it you'd like to see him? Yeah. Oh is no, it, is this a must or? Yeah. And maybe, right? Oh, no, so-and-so's about to die. I've got to get there in the next week. Oh, okay. So yeah. do you see how the why and the reason for the why provides the context? Because if you yeah. need to get from Perth to Sydney and you need to get there in a day, driving's not going to do it for you. You yeah. physically couldn't do it, right? So now the right thing for you is to get on an aeroplane. And the what and the how best determined by the why. Mm. Yeah. And so if we sat here and said, what's the, what's better, a car or a plane? I mean, we could, you know, some people are afraid of yeah. planes. You, and you this is where sit. so much education and podcasts and other things just go wrong. And I'm glad that we're on that, the same page with this. Because... Well, that's why I get frustrated because everyone's looking for the right how. Yeah. And the answer is the how is variable. It all depends on, <laughs> it yeah. all depends on, it depends. And, you know, like, oh, Steve, tell us about this property that you bought today so I can go and buy it. That's the property that's right for me where I am in life. It's not the right property for everyone. I mean, I got into financial freedom via positive cash flow property, but there are other strategies out there in yeah. real estate that can still achieve the same outcome. Exactly. But it was just right for me. At that time. And you, you don't want to know what I've done. You want to know what I know. And the best way to know what I know is to read what I've written. Because, <laughs> you know, it's not positive cash flow is is interesting and it's relevant for some people. But what I know about what I've learned along the journey is of interest to everyone mm. who wants to emulate sort of what I've done. So when you get to the other side of financial freedom, and this is where I spend a lot of my time sort of thinking because... You know, a lot of people just think, oh, yeah, you get there, you're you're on a perpetual beach for the rest of your life, you know, mm. all, everything's, um, you know, all days are great. I've seen it with, with people that retire as well, like they lose their, their whole meaning for life. They um, Many of them die within a, a you know, short period of time. And That's because what they did defined who they are. Exactly. And when you don't do it anymore, what have you got to live for? Mm. And that's why I never want to be consumed by my investing. But the answer to that question is, how does life change when you become financially free? You have less things to worry about and you have more things to worry about. Mm. You have different things to worry about. Well, I do like how Robert Kiyosaki talks about the two problems, having not having enough money and having too much money. Like, which problem do you prefer? But they are very real. Both are problems that... I would say that differently, although I see where Robert's coming from. Yeah. I would say the mindset and motivation to attract money is, is different to the mindset and motivation needed to keep and protect your money. Mm -hmm. And what can happen is that people at the start think differently to how they are. And instead of becoming about expansion, it becomes about protection. Yeah, okay. And that glass half full to glass half empty is a significant shift for many people as they get older because they feel they have less time to fix up their mistakes. But I'll give you an example. Earlier on this year, I had a, a mole on my neck, which was just annoying because I was shaving and it was almost, you know, right where I, on the edge of where I would stop shaving. So I went to the doctor and the doctor referred me to a dermatologist. The dermatologist froze it off and did a check and then said, oh, look, we better take a biopsy of a funny looking mm. mark. And it turned out to be melanoma. Mm. So does being financially free stop you from getting skin cancer? No. No, definitely not. There's, does being financially free stop you from having teenage daughters with teenage daughter problems? <laughs> no. 
if there's a way to solve that and you work it out before mine get that old, <laughs> I, I'm happy. I'd be happy to buy and read that book. Yeah. The what Make I'm saying money, is yeah. that that money doesn't shield you from from health problems and it doesn't shield you from family or relationship problems. So sometimes it can make both your health and your family mm, yeah. situation worse because mm-hmm. you now have the ability, you know, gout was a disease for rich people because of their diet. They could afford a diet that other people couldn't and therefore it caused health problems. And sometimes families with money have bigger family problems because mm. they become fights over money and the kids become entitled and privileged and, you know, spoiled children sometimes become spoiled adults. And that can be a problem. I like to say that money takes the character of the person whose hands it's in. Mm. And if that if that person is corrupt, then money will become corrupt. If that person is generous, then the money will become generous. If that person is fruitful, it'll be fruitful. If it's stingy, it'll stingy. And therefore, in order not to be hurt by money, and you know, remember what the Bible says, that the love of money is the root of all evil. So it's not money. It's not the quantity of money you've got. It's your attitude and your heart towards money that's evil. So if you want to make sure that you aren't corrupted by money, then get the right heart from the beginning. Don't try and get the right heart <laughs> later on, although that's possible if what you've tried fails and you're convicted by what hasn't worked. Mm. But, yeah, I mean, one of the sayings I like to say is let's not kid ourselves. Money buys business class and business class is better than economy. So you get a more comfortable ride through life than might otherwise be the case, but you don't have any fewer problems necessarily. You just have mm. different problems. And the Bible says to whom much is given, much is required. And I think that's a a point that I try and talk about in the book, this notion that if you've got something, it's beholden upon you to do something with it so that you can can draw some extra meaning and help some people from it, but for the grace of God, go you. Well, that's a pretty good place to end things on, I think, Steve. (laughs) Yeah, well, you know, thanks for the chance to have a chat and I would really encourage people to, to go and grab a copy of Money Magnet. I mean, I've written it as a as a blessing for people to benefit from, but it's not going to be a benefit if you don't read it. So if you've enjoyed what we've spoken about today, then grab a hold of it and read it and let's keep the conversation going. Mm. And of course, the proceeds go to helping you with part of your larger legacy that you're trying to leave in giving back to the environment. Maybe just spend a moment telling us about that project. Yeah, I'd love to. I mean, I'm people can find out more by going to treechange.com, but in essence what it is is i went and bought 1500 acres of cleared land and i'm planting back a permanent native forest on it so far we've planted mm, somewhere nice. between three and four hundred thousand trees on it mm, wow and it's designed to be something that is there forever so the trees aren't being chopped down to be turned into paper in 10 or 15 years mm. or anything and what that's going to do is it's going to hopefully be a legacy piece that is the start of of many other projects that I'll be involved in while I've got life and energy left to give. Well, I guess if people also know someone else that might need the book, grab a a couple of copies and give one out at Christmas, good time of year to share it around. Well, that's what I say. The best gift you can give someone is the gift of knowledge because you're giving a hand up, not a hand out. Mm. Often at Christmas time, we end up giving presents that people don't really want, don't really need. And you know, it becomes a race to how much plastic can we open in a in a finite period of time. <laughs> Whereas something like a, a book, whether it's my book or someone else's book, yep. anything that can get someone thinking can 
give them give them what I call an intervention. Yeah. It can help them bust through the glass ceiling because you can yeah. only achieve what you can achieve with what you've got to a certain level. Yeah. If you want to go beyond that, and that's what we spoke about earlier, whether it's reading a Kiyosaki book or something I've written or listening to a podcast, it might be, then it'll give you a new idea. And that new idea can then level up your capabilities and potential. And the more you read and the more you know, the more you can level up. And that's exciting. Very exciting. Thank you so much for joining us today, Steve. Been a pleasure. Thank you. Just a reminder, the information discussed in this podcast is general in nature, as we don't know your specific situation. You should always seek professional advice before taking any action. For free market reports on your suburbs of interest and other helpful resources to grow your wealth, make sure you join my property investor update at investorsedge.com.au slash join. And finally, make sure you're a member of our Perth Property Investment Facebook group to be part of the conversation with other like-minded investors, get help to your questions, and get a feel for what's going on out there in the market. I'll see you in the group. Music.